We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, as we wrap up the week, I'd like to finish up with some more Q&A, questions and answers. I'm going to deal with this very, very important and specific question. Is God knowable? How can we know that God is real? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening to the show. Well, as you know, if you've been listening for the past couple days, I've done a series of questions and answers, and I think I'll continue that into next week. But today's Friday, and as we wrap up the week, I'd like to deal with the basic question, perhaps the question, the seminal question, the most important question of all time. How can we know that God is real? Is God knowable? Or is this just something that each one of us just makes up in our own head to try to to just just try to make it through life? We create this opiate, this drug that will sedate us into a stupor so that life isn't as ugly as it otherwise would be. This is essentially Karl Marx's argument that religion, Christianity, is the opiate of the masses. Is that really what's going on? Do each of us make up our own spaghetti monster in the, st- in the sky, to quote Richard Dawkins? Is this just a fairy tale, a Santa Claus story, or can we know that God is knowable? That's today's question. So let's take an early break, and when we get back, I'm going to read an exact question from a follower, and then I'm going to answer the question, is God knowable? In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. So the question, 
the question for the rest of the show, I think, I, I think it'll take the entire show to, to deal with this particular issue. But if not, I may deal with a second question. But this one is the important one. It's the basic one. It's a question that all of us have to, have to answer. Is God knowable? Or is, is it just a fantasy, a fairy tale, Santa Claus, make-believe? Is it a drug, the opiate of the masses, this concept of a god? Is Richard Dawkins right? Or is Dietrich Bonhoeffer right? Is, is, there, is there a god bigger and better and more important than you and me? Somebody who defines everything in intelligence that is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipowerful, sovereign. Is there a creator of everything we see around us? Is there a painter for the painting? Is there an author, a writer of the book? Is there an architect of the house? Is God noble? Is there something out there behind this complexity, this design, this order, these laws, laws like gravity, laws that you can't test in a laboratory, for example, like laws that tell us that rape is wrong, the Holocaust was bad, that slavery should be reviled. What's behind all of this? Are all of these ideas that I'm expressing right now merely the product of evolution, Darwinism? Or is there a self-evident truth above and beyond our theories and our ideas? Are we the Imago Dei? Are we made in the image of God with cognitive abilities, moral awareness, and culpability? The, the unique imprint of God on our heart, mind, and soul so that we do engage in stuff like this. Debate, argument, listening, conversation, learning. Are human beings different than the cow, the pig, the cat, the rat? Or are we merely nothing other than a more complex form of biological mass? Which leads you to the obvious conclusion, if that's the case, then why should we survive and the Ebola virus or the COVID virus lose? Because really, there's no moral significance between us and a virus, if you really go down this Darwinism trail to its full extent. Survival of the fittest, right? Is there a truth? Is there a truth with a capital T? And where does it come from, if there is one? Or is truth nothing but a lowercase t, a social and cultural construct? Radical relativism, where it doesn't matter what you believe as long as it works for you. The question, is God knowable, is the premise to everything I just asked. All of those other questions spring from that. John Adams said, our Constitution is made only for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Why did he say that? He knew that the answer to the question of, is God knowable, is a predicate. It's very important. The answer to that question serves as the foundation to a free society. Because if there is no God, then there will be a massive government to control human beings, to restrict our freedom to confine us more and more rather than to release us to do what we want? Oh, no. Radical pro progressivism is the antithesis of freedom. Because, as I've said a thousand times over on this show, if you get rid of the big laws of God, you don't get freedom. You get fascism. The paradox of liberty and law is obvious in our daily lives, and we understand that the ten simple laws of God at least John Adams did, and our founding fathers did. They understood that those ten simple laws were, were a foundation 
for greater freedom rather than less. And that if we got rid of those 10 simple laws and refused to acknowledge them and obey them, then we would find ourselves with thousands and thousands of little laws that are imposed on us, not by God, but by government, by the gang, and that we would be subject to the rule of the gang rather than the freedom that comes from our Creator. So, so is God knowable? In a, in a recent Facebook exchange, I had somebody ask me about a YouTube video that's out there. And the YouTube video is called Putting Faith in Its Place. I'll repeat that if you want to go Google it and try to find it. Putting Faith in Its Place. Now, this is a short little movie, and it is essential to the anti-Judeo-Christian worldview. It's, it's a rebuttal to the Judeo-Christian view of natural law, common sense, traditional morality, and the knowability of God. This little short video, Putting Faith in Its Place, it's the rebuttal that, uh, that is used to refute the knowability of God. It uses an analogy of a closed cube. So just imagine this. You've got a cube and it's closed. You can't get into it. And to try to prove that you cannot know what is inside the unknowable. That's what they're doing. So you've got this cube and they set it before you and you can't open the cube. It has no door. It has no latch. And they're arguing that you can't know what's inside. You can't know the unknowable. All right, so I'm going to give you my response to this, to this video. Here's the question that I, that I received from a Facebook follower with regard to this closed cube argument, putting faith in its place. That faith is a, is a uh, belief, uh, an irrational belief, a pretension of knowing what's inside that cube when it's impossible to know what's inside that closed box. Here's the question. Can we actually know anything about the existence of God? Isn't it impossible to argue for the knowability of something that by definition can't be known? I'll read the question one more time. Can we actually know anything about the existence of God? Isn't it impossible to argue for the knowability of something that by definition can't be known? Well, here's my answer. And before I presume to offer um, a lengthy response to this closed cube argument, I, I, I want you all to hear me here. I'm recommending a couple authors, uh, people that have a lot more wisdom on this stuff than I do. These are people that have wrestled with this journey for eons. You know, people like C.S. Lewis. I want you to go out there and read Mere Christianity. Don't read it just once. Read it several times. This is an argument for theism, and then he breaks theism down into, okay, if we believe that there is a God, and we've moved from deism to theism, how about Christianity? Is Christianity the better argument of all the others out there? And C.S. Lewis obviously concludes yes, and he boils it down to mere Christianity, um, the simplicity of the creeds of the Christian faith, and why he believes this is an answer to the question, can you know that God is real? Is God knowable? How about The Great Divorce and The Weight of Glory and The Abolition of Man? These are other books that C.S. Lewis has written. And these are all classics. And, and if you read them, you're going to find the wisdom of an honest man who is several steps ahead of all of us in this journey of faith. 
I mean, we all just need to take a spoonful of humility and honor the wisdom of those that have preceded us. People with a lot more intelligence than I have. Lewis, on his own admission, said that he was one of the most reluctant converts in all of England. And by saying this, he's telling you and me and everybody else all we need to know regarding the difficulty of this, of this journey of trying to, as Jacob did in the Bible, wrestle with God, the knowability of God. He's being intellectually honest with us. He's a man of integrity as he writes on these things. Uh, I'd also recommend you read Dinesh D'Souza's What's So Great About Christianity. I, I, I like anything that Oz Guinness writes, Ken Boa, Francis Schaeffer. Nancy Percy's book, Total Truth, is very good. And Chuck Colson was a hero of the faith. And he wrote a book titled The Faith, as, as well as another seminal work. Um, and it's, it's uh, what is it called? Oh, How Now Shall We Live? This is a pretty lengthy book. Um, it's a heavy lift, but it's very important to an understanding of the basics of the Christian faith. Harry Blameyers is another writer out there that I enjoy. And he's written a couple books. One's titled The Christian Mind, and the second book is The Post-Christian Mind. They're both exceptional. There's another book that's written by a friend of mine, Kelly Monroe Kohlberg. She's a former Harvard chaplain, and she wrote a book entitled A Faith and Culture Devotional. And there's a chapter in this book written by somebody else. Obviously, she's putting together devotionals. They're written by various different um, Bible-believing Christians, Orthodox Christians over the years. There's a chapter therein um, written by John Mark Reynolds. Now, he's a professor at Biola University. And in his essay, Reynolds uh, talks about Plato, the lover of truth. In fact, he titles the, the chapter, Plato, lover of, of truth, excuse me, Plato, lover of truth, beauty, and good. So in, in this chapter, it, it, this is really good. Reynolds makes the basic argument that Plato knew that the human heart yearns and it hungers and it wants, it seeks, it longs. You understand this language? Yearning, hungering, wanting, seeking, longing. Um, for what? For truth, for justice, and righteousness. This, there's this desire, and these desires in and of themselves, says Plato, are evidence of the existing of something immutable and right. All right? Thirst is made for water, and hunger is made for truth. That's from C.S. Lewis. S same thing. It's this platonic argument. Now, right is something that Plato calls love. So when he talks of love, Plato's speaking of this concept of rightness, righteousness, this thing that we hunger for. And Plato says in his book, Symposium, there has to be a greater truth than personal opinions and populist ideology, propaganda. In his book, um, Symposiums, Plato actually presents a fictitious, an imaginary dialogue with his mentor Socrates and himself to make this point. And here's the, the dialogue. It, it says, now tell me about love. This is Socrates. Tell me about love, says Socrates. Is, is love the love of nothing or of something? And Plato responds, well, of something, surely. So tell me about righteousness. 
Is this longing for righteousness a longing for something or a longing for nothing? And the answer is, well, surely it's a longing for something. In other words, righteousness must be out there if you long for something that's right. Justice must be out there if you long for justice. Beauty must be an objective category if you long for things that are beautiful. Truth has to be an objective standard if you long to align yourself with people that tell the truth. So this, this concept of love, this, this righteousness, this rightness, is a love for something and not nothing. That's, that's the point of this dialogue. So the point here between these two greatest philosophers ever in human history, or at least two of the greatest philosophers in the annals of time, is that human beings have a desire for answers, for justice, for love, for a bigger something. Let's just call it that, a bigger something. The ultimate good or goodness, if you will. Now, Reynolds says this, okay, in this, in this essay. The deep longing for justice, beauty, and truth must have an end. Plato believed that there was more to the cosmos than empty desire and death. In other words, hunger implies that there's food, and thirst implies that there's water, and questions are meaningless without the possibility of answers. Love cannot exist without an ultimate object of its affection. Do you understand this? So basically, one of the ways you know that there's a God is because you long for goodness, the ultimate standard of goodness, justice. The leftists of our time in their march for social justice prove that there must be a God because justice can't be defined by them. Because it's, if it's defined by them, then if the political power structure shifts, then it, it will be defined by me. And they admit at that point that they will not accept my definition of justice because they think there's a bigger standard than the individual. That very position begs the question, well, what's that standard? There must be an ultimate good. And how can there be an ultimate standard of goodness without God? So in, in, with this as a context, this video, Putting Faith in Its Place, is something that actually it's put together quite well. But... Here's my point. The documentary, this putting faith in its place, highlights the existence of hunger because they're sitting the cube before you and they're 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 acknowledging the, the whole premise is that you're curious, you hunger, you long, you seek, you want to know what's inside that closed cube. So in my opinion, it's highlighting the existence of hunger to prove that there is no such thing as food. Or it's a, it's a documentary, it's an effort to feature a drought to prove that there's no such thing as water. Am I making sense right now? Or as Pascal said, the vacuum at the center of every human soul bears the very image of the only thing that can fill that void. So as you look at the, the very premise of this video, of the closed cube, it causes me to scratch my head and say, well, wait a second, you're assuming that we care, that we long, that we want that we seek to know what's inside that closed cube. The very concept of the closed cube, as it's portrayed in this video, is 
It's thought-provoking, yes, and it does remind us that we do see through a glass darkly. Yeah, I'll agree to that. But the very desire to know what's in the box to see more clearly proves not that the box is empty, but that it contains something. Something must be in the box as the object of our desire to know, to be curious, to open the box. And that something must be the ultimate answer, the right the righteousness, the answer, the justice, the love, the bigger something. Otherwise, why do we care? Why are we talking right now? Why bother? If everything is relative and if there is no such thing as knowable transcendent truths, then why spend any time at all trying to prove that your argument against what I'm saying right now is true and that my argument is false? Why? Why would it matter? Why argue or contend for rightness, the, the accuracy, the veracity, the superior nature of your argument, if there is no standard of rightness to prove that I'm wrong? The entire presentation of this empty box argument, this closed cube, presupposes that the final answer is that there is no answer. And I, I believe this to be a self-refuting claim if there ever was one. So bottom line for me, as I watch this video and listen to these types of arguments, and you've heard them before, whether it's by watching this, putting God in its place, his place, uh, concept, or some sort of derivation of that argument in your daily conversations with somebody at work or somebody in your family. So the bottom line, the unavoidable pretext for any argument is that someone is right and someone is wrong. And the producer of this putting faith in its place takes 10 minutes, that's about how long the video is, to ironically prove this point by essentially saying <laughs> that he's right in condemning those who think they're right. That this ultimate hunger and yearning for understanding, for knowing, for opening the box proves nothing. That's what he's saying, and I'm saying the opposite. Plato said the opposite. Socrates said the opposite. Lewis says the opposite. Well, I'm going to go with Plato and Socrates and Lewis rather than the creator of this video. Thank you. I think their ideas have been tested over the course of time, and I think their IQ is a little bit superior to mine, and probably, likewise, their IQ is a little higher than the guy that put this video together. Now, the video is pretty well done. The, the writer, producer, whoever, is pretty thoughtful. And I, I'm not disparaging their intelligence. They're pretty bright, too. But at the end of the video, we're right back to where we started. We're left with this question. Which argument measures up? Which position comes closer to the mark? Which one? His, yours, mine? Socrates, Plato, Chesterton, Lewis, Blameyers? Kelly Monroe Kohlberg, John Mark Reynolds. I mean, who's right? Who's closer to the truth than the other? And when we admit that this is part of the conversation, that we're trying to figure out whose argument for the knowability of God is better than the other. So when we admit that that's the case, then we've actually come to a common agreement here. And that agreement is this, whether you are arguing that there's nothing in the cube or there's something in the cube, we all agree that we want to know what's in the cube. 
And when we come to that point, you also have to admit that all these other questions that we're asking must have an answer. And therefore, when there is an answer, we're looking for that answer. The, the human soul, the human heart, the human mind, whatever it is that you want to call the human being, has this unsatiable hunger and thirst, this, this quest to understand, to debate, to know. The very question that serves as the premise for today's show proves the point. Is God knowable? What's in the cube? Open it up. I want to know. What's in that closed box? Who, Who designed that development? Who's the architect? Who's the engineer? Who painted that picture? Who wrote that book? Who created this understanding that certain things are right and certain things are wrong? Where's the whole concept of justice come from in the first place? truth. When you get upset for somebody with somebody because they lied to you, what, what basis do you have for being angry or indignant? Righteous indignation is completely meaningless if there is no standard of righteousness to be indignant about. So all these questions, all these questions acknowledge this one thing that I've said over and over again on this show. You have to admit that there is a measuring rod outside of those things being measured if you want to do any measuring. You can't measure yourself by yourself. You've got to have a yardstick, a ruler, a tape measure. You can't weigh yourself without a scale. You can't weigh yourself against yourself. That would be meaningless, stupid, foolish. You've got to have something outside of yourself to figure figure out how much you weigh. You have to have a measuring rod outside of those things being measured or you can do no measuring. And the, the video's protest, if that's what you want to call it, presupposes that there's a jury. So even in the video, there's a presupposition here that they're presenting their case and that there's a jury, if you will, to hear their case and to decide who's guilty and who's innocent, who's right and who's wrong. So they're presenting a case as if it were in a court of law to a judge and to a jury. It appeals to an ultimate judge. The assumption here is that the video itself is making an appeal to you, to me, to the masses, to agree with them. And there can be no contest in this debate without some rules of engagement. There's got to be a referee to make the final call on the game, on the argument. Otherwise, why would any of us want to play the game Or even be spectators, for that matter. Why are you watching the thing? Why is the video important? An analogy here would be, it would be foolish to go to a Cavs and Celtics game if there isn't some sort of standard judge and referee to make sense out of the exercise, the game itself. Just be watching chaos. So in a nutshell, my point's this. While a lot of people do an excellent job of trying to refute an objective, immutable, unchangeable, absolute reality, i.e. God, people that produce videos like this closed cube argument have actually proven the opposite. Because those people have to assume that there is a logos for there to be logic. And they likewise have to assume that there has to be a law for there to be lies. 
Another obvious assumption here is that there has to be righteousness with a capital R to justify any argument that somebody's right and somebody's wrong. You can't have righteous indignation if there is no righteousness with a capital R. It, the producer of this video has to assume that he is right if he is to argue that I'm wrong. Do you get my point here? I'm beating this horse to death, but it's important. He has to believe in truth for him to claim that someone else's beliefs are false about God or anything else. His words are simply a worthless expense of breath unless these standards of rightness and wrongness come from somewhere outside of my mind or his mind, the temporal. His epistemological and ontological nihilism implodes upon itself. The nothingism of his argument that there's nothing in the cube. We don't know for sure, but there's nothing in the cube. There is no God. It's self-refuting. He would have no energy or desire to prove me wrong in anything I'm saying right now if he didn't believe he could prove, prove that he is right. And that fact may be the best proof that God is God and he is not. So is God knowable? The question itself begs the question, why do you care? Why do you care what's in the box? Why are you hungry? Because there's food. Why are you thirsty? Because there's water. Why do you think you're right and I'm wrong? Because there's a standard of righteousness. And heaven help us if that standard is you or me. No, that standard of ultimate righteousness has to be God. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.